Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 31st, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, what does the future of copyright look like now that AI can churn out content? Plus, a new program to help Border Patrol agents deal with the stress of the job. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Army may be putting its final touches on the plan for the Army of 2030, but it's already looking ahead to building its Army of 2040. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins us with the details. Alexandra, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Eric? I'm very well. So how is the Army going about planning for a future that is 17 years away? Doesn't that seem crazy? They've <laughs> been talking far, a yeah. lot about the <laughs> they've been talking a lot about the army of 2030 and it sounds like they've got that pretty well on target and now they're really starting to pivot when they talk about it and say, you know, we really have to plan this out now. And they're looking at having a draft concept of the 2040 army pulled together by this fall. Uh this week there was a USA AUSA Global Force Symposium in Huntsville, Alabama, and a bunch of the general officers who were there were talking about this concept of 2040 and what they have to do to be ready for it and and what their plans are. Uh, Here's Army Futures Commanding Officer General James Ramey. 2040 seems like a long way away, but I, I believe we have about an 18, 12, 18, 24 month window that we need to pursue with a sense of urgency to figure out what's going to be different, what's the operating environment going to look like. Not to get it right, but to make sure we don't get it really wrong and to be in a better position than whoever we're fighting to adapt to the changes between what we thought and what really happens. All right, and part of the plan involved training, I imagine? That's one of the big things they're planning for, Eric. The Army Futures Command and the Training and Doctrine Command, that's TRADOC, Uh, They're looking at changes as they move forward because they're going to have way different technology in 17 years. They've already revised one operating manual to a 3.0 level. And then they're looking at new plans that are going to match new technology, which they're not exactly sure what it's going to be. But as they plan, the planning has to be for how are we going to train our enlisted soldiers? How are we going to train our non-commissioned officers? And how are we going to train our young junior officers coming into the Army? Uh, here's General Ramey again. They're working hard on leader leader development, right? That's a, one of our superpowers as, as an Army, the quality of leaders we produce. So the, the assessment programs, looking at our battalion commanders, brigade commanders, command sergeant majors, make sure we get that right. And I could go on and on. Well, in order to have leaders, you're going to have to have them start out as recruits. How does recruiting factor into this plan? Yeah, recruiting is one of the things the Army is talking about so much right now, because last year they fell short of their recruiting goal by 15,000 soldiers. And all reports this year so far looks like they're again going to fall short of their recruiting goals. So the big question everyone is asking is, what do we do about that? How are we going to fix recruiting? They're figuring it's going to take a five to seven year push to really get recruiting back on track. And the goal for that 2040 Army is to see a fully fielded Army with everyone they need there. But again, it's looking ahead because the soldiers that they're going to recruit in 2040, they're babies right now. And so 
they haven't even, they don't even know what the experience of those young men and women are going to be as they move forward. Here's Lieutenant General Scott McKeon, who's the Deputy Commanding General at Army Futures Command. What will our soldiers, what will our commanders look like in 2040, right? What's their skill sets going to be? They're not our skill sets. You know, we are digital immigrants, right? You know, we are not digital natives. And today's young lieutenants, young specialists out there today will be in positions similar to what we are in now, you know, in in 2040. Uh, What's their skill set and what's going to be important to them? We're speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, and new technology seems to be the name of the game with any modern military. So what part will new tech play in this plan? They're really not totally sure, but there's a lot going on. And they talk about those young people who are coming in as people who grew up gaming and who are very technologically astute. And so the kind of things they're looking at are in training, they're using a lot more simulators, uh, virtual reality type things where they are able to layer in all kinds of details, like what a street looks like in a, in a war zone and whether there are carts on it or cars on it or people. And so that's one thing they're doing. Then there's, of course, lots of sensors, lots of data management. How do we get data to the to the field? How do we tr- share it with our joint partners? That's the interoperability part. Joint forces are, are a key word in all of this planning. And as one general said, what they're really looking for is infantrymen who can go out there and still come back and code on a computer. All right. Well, we'll certainly be hearing more about this, I'm sure, as we also will be standing by for those new recruitment ads to go on our Facebook timelines and we'll see them during uh, the Super Bowl, probably. Federal News Network's Alexandra Laura, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Eric. And be all you can be, right? Absolutely. (laughs) You can find more on Alexandra's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a new program to help Border Patrol agents deal with the stress of the job. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Border Patrol agents face very unique and difficult situations in their daily work. Whether it's arresting dangerous criminals or rescuing those in peril, that kind of trauma can start to weigh on a person's mental health. To help lift morale and put a friendly face on its community engagement efforts, Border Patrol has launched its Support Canine program. To learn more about it and the four-legged agents who are part of the program, I had the chance to speak with Robert Hess, Supervisory Border Patrol agent and Support Canine handler, along with his partner, Chappie. Come say hi. Come here. I know it's Monday, but say hi. Okay. All right. Down. All right. That was great. Thanks for that. All right, Robert, why don't you tell me a little bit about how this program got started? So all the last couple of years, the Border Patrol has seen an unprecedented number of deaths, line of duty deaths, off-duty deaths, suicides, and just in general, a lot of issues. Most recently, at least in the RGV sector, we've experienced uh, a couple of suicides in the line of duty death. And during one of those suicides, uh, I was asked to assist with a canine, a support canine that was brought in from OFO, a dog by the name of Izzy. And Izzy's handler's name's Monica, and Monica is an OFO officer. And I had the, uh, the opportunity to be with them and kind of see what they were doing and uh, just kind of taking mental note on the effectiveness to see uh, exactly how it worked. 
and uh, I know prior to that the ball was already rolling with with the Border Patrol. They were already trying to make that happen, but uh, definitely, at least in my mind, it cemented the the importance of these canines because I got to see it firsthand how effective they were with the families uh, that were going through tough times. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. That first time, you know, that you were out in the field and you were able to bring Chappie or any of the other dogs by the guard stations, what was the reactions that you got? Better than I expected. Uh, I mean, we, we are law enforcement. Uh, we got some some salty dogs in the Border Patrol, but honestly, I've been overwhelmed by the support. Chappie is a poodle, which doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not the kind of dog you usually see in the Border Patrol. We usually have a uh, the German Shepherd or, or that type of a dog that's much more aggressive. And Chappie is not aggressive. Uh, Chappie is a, a very kind and uh, wants to be petted, wants to be with people. And uh, so I would say overall, the, the reception has been very positive at the station and as well as, I mean, I can't help but look. He, he's kind of all over the place in, in social media. So even even the comments, for the most part, are, are very positive. Yeah. So what is it in uh, what is this in employ? Does this mean you're just you go around from guard station to guard station? And, you know, are these scheduled vi- visits? Are these impromptu visits? And, you know, do you just go in and just spend some time with the officers and talk with them? I mean, you're a chaplain, so that's your <laughs> that's part of your job as well. Sure. What does this entail? So, yeah, on, on the day to day, we try to schedule what stations we're going to go to or our our. Uh, mandate was to go to each each shift, each station uh, throughout our our sector, and uh, introduce Chappie to to all the all the all the stations, and that uh, that's the primary primary uh, exposure I get that the agents are are getting right now to Chappie. Critical incidents take uh, take the first seat though. Not everything can can be scheduled right. Things get changed, and things have already gotten changed uh, at the last minute multiple times. Uh, he's already participated in. And a funeral. We've gone to do home visits to some families that uh, either lost a loved one or an agent uh, that that died, an agent himself that died here recently in uh, RGV. So those those definitely take a priority to to see in the stations. But he he's in high demand. I get I get requests all the time from all the stations. They would love to see Chappie. And most uh, places where I go, they they ask me to just just to leave him there with them to spend time with him. Uh, so he. He's he's enjoying all the love that he's getting. Yeah, I I wanted to as somebody who views all the press releases from CBP, as you mentioned, yeah, there are some there's some dark things that happen down there, uh, especially at the southern border. How do you, do you all have a decision process on? Wow, you know, we should probably head out there because you know X occurred, or I guess you know I don't want you to say what takes precedent over different horrible events, but uh, how, how does that decision process go? Uh, it's not it's not really an easy process and it's super hard to say no uh, you know we want to be everywhere and help as much as we can and luckily we haven't had you know competing critical incidents uh, so I, I don't know that I can really say what what the precedence is going to be I know that we'll do our best to be where where we need to be and where needed we will just divide our time and uh, try to hit uh, even with visiting the stations uh, I'm trying to to multi- hit multiple stations, uh, multiple uh, musters on on any given day, which can be taxing, but uh, there sure is a lot of benefits to to making people uh, aware of Chappie and, and what he does. 
Yeah, and as somebody with your experience, what are some of the emotional issues or the you know the the main emotional issues that you see in border patrol uh, members? What are you know some of the main issues that they deal with after witnessing pretty traumatic stuff? Boy, that's that's a tough question because the answers are all over the place. You know, it's it's an individual, and everybody deals with with trauma in different ways. And definitely not not getting over past traumas kind of multiplies the the effect of current traumas. Um, so uh, what, one of the benefits that I'm seeing to 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 the support canine program in general is that agents are they're they're revisiting some of those things that they haven't taken care of in the past. Yeah, because Chappie probably lets them bring their guard down a little bit and you know help help everybody feel a little bit more comfortable. Exactly. And I think if, if there's any one message that I would want uh, our, our agents and our personnel to know is is that that's his purpose is to bring calm, to help uh, people feel like they're in a safe place. One of the, the big takeaways that I got from Monica and, and Izzy, she, she they do some work with uh, with the FBI and in interviews with children. And Monica says that she when she takes Izzy into to be with the children when they're about to be interviewed is uh, she just tells the kiddos that uh, Izzy's an officer and they can tell Izzy anything they they want. And and I think if you tell just about anybody that scenario, it makes perfect sense that that would help a child feel calm and safe. And uh, it's the same thing for us. It, we we, we want to act like we're tougher than kids, right? But we're not. We're, we, we have the same struggles and obviously we're, we're older and have some experience and ho- hopefully some wisdom. But the dog helps provide that safe space, uh, provide that calm sensation that allows people to, to open up and not be so guarded, like you said. And what about you personally? Does it help to have a, a, a companion along as you're going around talking to guards about heavy topics like this? Yeah, well, he doesn't help me drive and he's not much of a conversationalist <laughs> on our drives. But, uh, man, I love having him around. Uh, he He is all personality and a lot of what's been going on is just kind of getting to know one another and feeling uh, uh, kind of identifying what what he wants and and how to uh, how to work with him. Uh, a lot of the training that we did revolved around that just uh, socialization, being around strangers, going to the airports, uh, just going to different locations where he was exposed to a lot of different people, a lot of noises. Uh, we even went to uh, Knott's Berry Farm, it was an amusement park. So just the noise, the roller coasters and kids screaming and having a great time, just a lot of distractions for him. So for me, it was a good opportunity to, to see uh, how he reacts in those kind of situations. And for me personally, uh, you asked how it affects me. It's it's made me more introspective. It's helped me kind of take a second look at why why we do what we do and uh, feel what we feel. It's been good for me. Yeah, that was going to be one of my last questions. There is was there any specialty training for Chappie? Just having to go into areas that, like you said, are either crowded and noisy or some are out in the middle of nowhere. How does Chappie react to the different environments? I guess he does really well. So all, the Border Patrol initially uh, purchased five dogs and trained five handlers. We all went out to California, uh, and it was really more to train us. The dogs have already had extensive training. From the time that they're eight weeks old, they started getting trained as guide dogs for the blind. And uh, all five of those dogs promoted to the Border Patrol and became support canines. So they received additional training on top of the training they received as guide dogs. Um, extensive training. So from eight weeks old to Chappie's two and a half years old, he's been getting trained. 
And uh, as far as translating that to the field, we've had some interesting moments where we learned stuff that we didn't already know. Um, Chappie doesn't like clapping, so uh, he'll, he'll start barking. So that's something we're working on. But for the most part, he, he just goes with the flow. And uh, the training that we received at, at our academy was, was very beneficial. They uh, highlighted the need for the for us, the handlers, to to not get stressed out because the dogs are going to feel it through the leash. I believe it. I, the, the more relaxed I am and the more I trust him, uh, the more relaxed he is and the more he's able to do what, what he was trained to do. I wanna, I've been in the Border Patrol for 23 years. It'll be 24 this summer. For those who struggle with this this activation, this new pilot program, I said you give it a chance. I've been an agent for 23 years and we've come a long way. I've, I've heard, I, I probably shouldn't read the comments in, in some of the, the Facebook posts, but I do. And uh, I struggle with those who, who say that the, the Border Patrol doesn't care because we have come a, come a long, long way in that in that area. It used to be where it was just the Border Patrol we took care of. We've always taken care of one another. But now we're seeing uh, the agency take steps to to make sure that, that people are taken care of. And the biggest example, I've participated in a few uh, police weeks, and uh, that's where it's definitely magnified. If you've ever participated in that, you know just how much the Border Patrol takes care of its people in, in that venue. And uh, it's no different at, at, at the station and the sector levels. So I would... Just to ask that, uh, give give these uh, these dogs a chance. There's there's five of them now. There'll be one in uh, San Diego. We'll make a sixth dog, and uh, I, I I foresee them doing a lot of good. Uh, I've already seen hearts change uh, with regard to to this program, and I hope that that continues. Robert Hess is supervisory border patrol agent and support canine handler for U.S. Border Patrol, speaking there with me and his partner Chappie. You can hear this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/slash Federal Drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, is Congress even capable of thinking rationally about spending? But first, what does the future of copyright law look like now that AI can churn out content? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. ChatGPT, AnyWord, MidJourney. These are among the most popular content generators powered by artificial intelligence. But when there's no human hand behind the creation, what rights does the user of an AI tool have when it comes to copywriting those sometimes strange images and writings? Well, to help answer some of those questions, the U.S. Copyright Office is launching a new initiative to lay out just where its policies stand and to also hear from the people using generative AI technologies. I got the chance to speak with Andrew Foglia, who is Deputy Director of Policy and International Affairs at the Copyright Office. The beginning is actually a long time ago. The the office has actually been following an issue of computer-generated works for decades. And even with AI and generative AI, we've had events two and three years ago. But the initiative itself is a response to the rapid growth of generative AI technologies. You mentioned ChatGPT, Dolly, things like that. And so it is our effort to look at different issues like the scope of copyrightability in works created using AI technology, and uh, the use of, of copyrighted works to train AI technologies. And it has three major components. The first, we've issued new registration guidance to explain how uh, the office will handle works involving AI-generated material. Second, we're going to have public listening sessions to hear from artists, technologists, uh, lawyers involved in these issues about 
what kind of tools are out there, how they're using them, and also you know what their hopes and concerns are for AI. And then third, we're going to be soliciting public comments, uh, written public comments, to further inform our registration practices and our policy analysis. And yeah, we've also, by the way, launched a public landing page for AI. That's copyright.gov slash AI, which has all the information on all these different parts of the initiative. So this is still sounds like a very much a work in progress still. But can you lay out for me what has the office found so far regarding copyright issues pertaining to AI created content? You know, whether it's a, a story or a song created by AI, they have all kinds of tools now for that. What has been the, the general consensus uh, between industry and your office? The general rule at the office is actually a, a very old rule. It's not our rule. It's copyright law's rule. The copyright law has a human authorship requirement, and that's rooted in the text of both the Constitution and actually the Copyright Act. And the office has written about this before, but because of the new uh, the new cases we're receiving, the new applications we're receiving involving AI-generated works, we've had to restate that rule and explain, and we wanted to explain uh, how we're applying it. So... Last month, we issued a policy statement, which contains our, like, a clear statement of the human authorship requirement, its legal roots, and also how we're applying it to new registration applications. So, for example, it explains that if you are applying to register a work that contains AI-generated material, you need to tell us that. You can disclose it as part of your form, and we will register parts of your work that have human authorship, but we're not you're not going to give you a registration of the material that was AI generated. If you are, let's say you already did register a work that had AI generated material, the policy statement says you need to file a supplemental registration. And then if you have questions, it also says you can call us. We have experts who are happy to communicate with you about your registration and make sure that you can properly register your work. I promise this is the only specific situation I'll throw at you. Uh, I, you know, I create a story uh, from one of these AI-generated softwares, and and I say, hey, I wrote this story. I want to I want to copyright it. I want to make it my own. And I don't tell you all that I actually used AI. What is what is the mechanism in place for you know discovering that I'm a liar? I guess would be the question. <laughs> So the mechanisms to discover you're a liar are sort of hard to say exactly. Like there are the one thing that might happen is if you go to court, say somebody decides to sue you for infringement or you decide you want to sue somebody for infringing your work. At some point, they may discover that you did not, in fact, write this work. It was AI generated. And that's going to have a couple of consequences. First, the court can decide to disregard your registration. Second, once the Copyright Office learned, the Copyright Office can cancel your registration. There are also uh, fines available for the, the Copyright Office can levy if you knowingly misstate something on your registration to the office and its material. So basically, there are consequences for failing to disclose, and I would be worried about that. And that's, but but honestly, we're we're trying here to make sure everybody can properly disclose their work. And to the extent that you contributed anything original to that story, you would be able to get a registration of that. It would just have to be separate and independent from what's going on with the AI-generated content. Got it. So, yeah, like you were saying, you're just going back. The rules still apply. And, you know, even though AI may be disruptive for the content creating business, it, it seems as if, you know, you all are just saying, hey, just stick to the rules and you'll be OK. <laughs> With the human authorship requirement, it is the same rule. It applies in a way that has been outlined and suggested by past cases. It's nothing new there. But we appreciate that with the new growth in these technologies, there are a lot of questions and there's more confusion. And I should say, it's 
important to note that some of these issues we may not fully anticipate yet. That's part of the reason we're having these listening sessions and that we're going to do solicit further written comments is we want to learn more about what's happening. We appreciate that this is a transformative technology and it's frankly going to continue changing. I don't think the AI technology is going to stop tomorrow or even whenever we you know, actually you know, solicit comments. But by hearing from content creators in different industries, we're going to learn a lot more about what's going on and where appropriate, we'll issue new guidance. You just provided me a perfect segue into my next question, which is what have you been hearing from different industries coming mm. from these, uh, whether they're you know events or uh, just solicited comments that you all got? Uh, what, what have you been hearing from, you know, whether it's the news creation business or the music creation business? So frankly, even before we started the initiative, we'd heard from uh, members of the news publishing business some curiosity and interest about how generative AI might affect their industry. In other industries like the movie business, there are more questions about how the registration guidance might apply to, oh, say you're using AI to like airbrush out some features of an actor's face or voice acting, for example. It's a lot of very case by case specific, like, hey, I want I like I want to use this particular technology to to do this thing. Do I have to disclose it? Gotcha. And on that, you know, the people we're leaving out of this conversation so far are the companies that own the AI algorithms and the actual uh, bots that are creating this content. Where do they stand in all of this and what rights do they have if somebody is using their tools to create content to make money for themselves? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> As we think about our initiative, we've talked about sort of three buckets of big AI and copyright questions. The first is sort of the authorship question we talked about, like when can you like when can you register a work involved that an AI helped generate? The second is the training question that I mentioned earlier, when you use copyrighted materials to train an AI. And a third set of issues might have to do with output infringement. Like what happens if you generate output that is somehow infringing? Uh, who's liable and under what circumstances? I have to imagine that's like a it's going to be a very interesting question. It's something we are hoping to explore as part of our listening sessions and as part of our later solicitation of public comments. I will say that we are hoping that technology companies will come to our listening sessions and talk to us. Like the listening sessions are open to the public. Anyone can attend. You can sign up on copyright.gov slash AI. And if you want, you can submit a speaker request form and then we'll be selecting speakers to actually be on the panels at those sessions. And again, we are inviting technology companies. We're hoping they participate because we want to learn from them too. Yeah. Not to mention the confusion of, you know, a lot of these AI tools are mostly garnering stuff from past data. You know, what if somebody can identify, hey, th my data was the root of this person's creation. <laughs> so, and then you have to go back and back and back. I mean, can you go back that far with this AI technology? Are you finding? It is a very important question where how far you can trace particular data through the learning process. We are hearing I mean, I think you can even see in some of the lawsuits that are out there, there are different characterizations if you talk to the plaintiffs in this case versus the maybe some of the lawyers representing the technology companies on the other side. And that is an important issue that we are hoping to explore further through our 
uh, initiative. All right. And uh, I just want to uh, touch on the uh, dates that you all have coming up uh, for the public listening sessions. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about those? I know that you break them down kind of by industries, but can you just lay out what those uh, events are, 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 are in, entail? <laughs> I'd be happy to. So the first event is April 19th, and that listening session is going to be focused on literary works, including, and this is an odd one for people who are not in the copyright space, but that includes actually software. <laughs> The second session will be on visual arts. So things involving Dolly, but like not just 2D paintings, but also sculptures, any sort of visual art. The third session will be on audiovisual works, which may be movies, some aspects of video games. Video games are an odd case where they cross a lot of lines in copyright world. The fourth will be on music and sound recordings. So it's one session for each of those kinds of work. And again, we're inviting artists, technologists, lawyers, academics who work in these areas, anybody who's like interested in these issues, we are hoping they will listen in and some, we are hoping they will register to try to speak at these events because we are very interested to hear from everyone. I guess I would just reiterate that we have this new landing page, AI, or sorry, copyright.gov slash AI, that has not only links to our past events and policy guidance, it's going to have speeches, and it's going to have any announcements we make in the future about new policy guides, about new events, about anything like that. So that's going to be the best resource for people who are interested in these issues. And I guess one other thing I would mention, I did flag this earlier, but if you have questions, if let's say you read the policy statement or you don't find the, well, let's say you read the policy statement and you have a, a very particular hypothetical that you don't feel like is fully answered by it or you're confused, call us. We have experts get in touch with us. We have people who are there to help guide you through and make sure that you can do what you want to do in the copyright system. Okay. And, and I just want to reiterate that if I do uh, write into you, I'll be answered <laughs> by a human, right? Not a chat bot. Not <laughs> <something>. <laughs> that is correct. At least... For the time being, Andrew Fogley is deputy director of policy and international affairs at the U.S. Copyright Office. You can hear this interview and also find more information about those listening sessions at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network. Is Congress even capable of thinking rationally about spending? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. By all accounts, the nation is on an unsustainable fiscal course. Congress's own budget and oversight agencies say this regularly, yet members refuse to confront the main drivers of exploding deficits. There's got to be another way. Elaine Kamark is a veteran of budget battles as a member of the Clinton administration. She's now with the Brookings Institution, and she joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin earlier to talk about what can be done. As you point out in your latest piece at Brookings, what they end up arguing about on the Hill is a fraction of the budget because after interest on the debt, after the entitlement programs, which are ruled, quote unquote, non-discretionary, there's the defense budget and there's the rest of the operating the government budget. One side won't commit to cutting the opposite side and vice versa. And so they keep approving these big budgets. What can possibly break this jam and maybe get to some of the big issues? Well, you hit the nail on the head. There's just no money to speak of in the non-defense discretionary side of the budget. And the problem with that, of course, is that even what is in the non-defense discretionary side is things that people think are important. And as I said in my piece, you know, the air traffic controllers, 
people get pretty mad when they can't take off on time or flights are canceled because there aren't enough controllers to fly safely. So there's a lot in that piece of the budget that's hard to cut. Look, there are only two ways to do this. Let's just talk about that. The first way is to decide that you're not going to do this function at the federal level anymore. Okay, take an entire department, take housing and urban development. People have argued that HUD is essentially a local and regional issue, not a national issue. And okay, so maybe we shouldn't have a housing policy at the national level. Okay, if you say we're not going to do this anymore, and states will do it, or cities will do it, or regional entities will do it, okay, that's one way to cut the federal budget. But to simply take money out so that what the federal government is left doing, they're doing badly, is pretty stupid, right? So that's one way. The second way is the way we did it in the Clinton administration and reinventing government, which was very time-consuming, very people-heavy, although we didn't hire people. We got people from the agencies to do it who came over to work for us, is to actually look agency by agency, what are they doing, what could be automated, where could layers of management be cut because you were going to use technology, etc. And we did cut the workforce um, Bill Clinton did have balanced a balanced budget by the end of his term, second term. And uh, that is another way to do it. But that is anathema to the Republicans. They hate government so much they don't want to learn about it. Well, on the other hand, you could say Democrats love it so much they can't give up one fingernail shaving of it. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, both parties have real problems with this, right? Democrats think everything is sacrosanct. Republicans don't want anything. And Frankly, if you want to cut the budget, you have to really learn about the federal government. You have to really take a hard look at what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it can be done, but it is really not easy. The bigger questions, the discretionary budget is roughly a little bit north of $1.5 trillion. Maybe it's approaching 1.6 in the 2024 request. And if you could take $100 billion out of it, $200 billion out of it, it would not make a dent really in the deficit because there's another four and a half trillion that nobody will touch. Well, you can't touch the interest, the debt service, because then that would be defaulting on the debt. But then there is entitlement, which again is a third rail. And I'm just looking at France, which realized that are (laughs) unsustainable. And God, if we could only retire at 64, we'd be dancing in the streets and not rioting in the streets. But my question is, how do we get to that issue? And anything in your experience lead to that discussion? You know, that was one of the sad things about Bill Clinton's second term getting tied up with the intern scandal. He had a solid victory in 96, and we had budget surpluses. We were looking at budget surpluses. It was the ideal time to do a transition in entitlement programs, in how they were funded and in how they were paid out, et cetera. Because as you know, and as we know from around the world, whenever you move from one system to another, there are huge transition costs. We had the money in the late 90s. We had the money to actually pay for transition costs. And yet we did not have, or Bill Clinton did not have the political capital to to do anything like that. So we were stuck and we missed that moment. I mean, we missed that moment in history. 
And so now, you know, you, the the other moment in history was, I think, 1983, when Reagan and Tip O'Neill basically did an entitlement reform package. It was very quietly done. It was done for future generations. And yet it bought us some important time in terms of the soundness of the system. So those are sort of the two ways to do it. We're, we're not going to have surpluses anytime soon. And unfortunately, we don't have the kind of working relationship between a Speaker of the House and a President of the United States that could do a grand deal, a grand bargain. And, you know, I mean, the interesting thing about that 1983 deal was I was much younger then, and it affected me, but I had no idea, really, <laughs> what was in it. I mean, and I was a political science graduate student. I mean, it, I had no idea. And because one of the ways to fix the system is you do, do it in the out years. You obviously have to make people who are in the system. You can't mess with them. But you can, in fact, make very incremental changes. And what's always struck me about Social Security particularly is how very small changes have gargantuan budget effects. A lot of leverage there. Yeah, it really is a lot of leverage there. So again, if you had a normal political system where you were able to negotiate, this is very doable, but we haven't had that for a long time. Yeah, I thought George W. Bush also missed an opportunity in the beginning of his second term, maybe changing the investment structure of Social Security so it would be more productive than simply being in treasury bonds. But the way he presented it, did not include the other party. It was kind of a surprise bomb drop, and therefore well, it went nowhere. The other thing that happened to Bush, remember, is that whatever political capital he got from winning in 2004, he lost with Hurricane Katrina. Katrina happened then in September of his first term. So he didn't have nearly the political capital he needed to do this. And I will tell you, because, of course, I worked for Al Gore and we looked at this very, very closely. The bottom line to any privatization of Social Security, the bottom line is, as they say in Texas, that dog don't hunt. It just doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is that any drop in the market that would affect a generation of retirees, the political will and strength to have Congress step in and make them whole would be overwhelming. And so it's kind of a dream. I guess the same could be said for means testing, too. I mean, there are billionaires on Social Security, and they're entitled to it because the law says so, and sure. Medicare and so on. With the billionaires, I mean, there are very small adjustments that could be made that they wouldn't even notice. So changes in the way you calculate cost of living for seniors with, you know, millions of dollars in assets, they wouldn't notice. <laughs> They're not living on their Social Security. <laughs> so I think there is a more fertile ground than privatization. So nothing can happen then in the short term. I guess it's kind of the mystery then of what will make people want to cooperate with one another. And I don't think either one of us knows the answer to that question. That's right. I mean, this is one place where you really need both parties doing good faith negotiations. And it's not as if there aren't answers. 
There are plenty of answers. There's plenty of ways to tackle this. But the political will in this day and age is just not there. Elaine Kamark is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings Institution. We'll post this interview along with a link to her latest essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The General Services Administration is targeting underutilized property, but agencies aren't giving up their office space just yet. GSA sees a major opportunity to sell real estate the federal government no longer needs and consolidate space for the federal workforce now that much of the federal workforce has adapted to working from home. But agencies say they're still unclear just what their office space needs are in the long term. Federal News Network's Joy Heckman has more. The Biden administration sees a major opportunity to sell office space the federal government no longer needs now that much of the federal workforce has adapted to working from home. Many federal employees prefer working from home, and many agencies have adopted a hybrid schedule of bringing employees back to the office for just a few days each pay period. But agencies unsure of their long-term office space needs have been reluctant to give up the space they already occupy. Republican members of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee say agencies are in a unique position to sell underutilized but high-value real estate in the D.C. metro area and beyond. All of the circumstances set the stage for an opportunity to right-size federal space and shed unneeded real estate. If the agencies aren't using it, quite frankly, they should be happy to give it up and not have to deal with it. That's Congressman Scott Perry, chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic Development, Public Buildings, and Emergency Management. Perry says federal occupancy rates in the D.C. metro area remain at half of what they were before the COVID-19 pandemic and that ongoing telework policies have only made this problem worse. Nina Albert, the commissioner of the General Services Administration's Public Building Service, told the subcommittee that some agencies are leading office-based consolidation efforts because they are more confident in what their office plans are. But more broadly, Albert told lawmakers that much of the federal government is still uncertain about how much office space the federal workforce will need in the long term. Where the pendulum swinging is not set. And what we're doing to manage through this time, not only given the size of the portfolio, but also given the complexity of the time, is that you're working with each agency on what their plans are. Kay Sargent, the director of Workplace at the architecture and design firm HOK, says each agency's office space needs will vary. And what's right for the FBI may not necessarily be right for the IRS. Whether you work remotely or not has nothing to do with whether you want to. It has to do with your job, what is needed of you, and what is required. And some people can do that amazingly well, other people can't. Agencies are hesitant to predict what the future of the federal workplace will look like, but Sargent told lawmakers that agencies are unlikely to bring a critical mass of the federal workforce back to a pre-COVID routine of coming into the office five days a week. Our way of working has changed significantly in the last 30 or 40 years. And the pushback that we're getting from the workforce right now is basically we can't sustain at this level and go in every single day and give up everything. And so I do believe that there is a reason and a way we can find some balance that we need to get people into the office more than they're there now, but we also need to find some way to have some balance. Not everyone is on board with telework. Congressman Chuck Edwards urged agencies to consolidate office space, but says they should also bring federal employees back to the office full time. I'm certainly in favor of consolidation. I I believe that there has to be a way we can reduce the floor space, uh, unused floor space that I've seen here. But I think that we need to do it in a way 
that would insist that people be at work. We don't need a hybrid model in federal government. We need people at work. Edwards says his office hears from constituents every day who are unable to get through to the IRS, the Social Security Administration, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And many times I believe it's because the people that work in those agencies are on their sofa doing their laundry while they're doing Zooms and walking their dogs and watching Oprah and all that sort of thing that really makes employees unproductive. The federal government already has a plan in place to deal with all this excess office space. Congress in 2016 created the Public Buildings Reform Board as part of the Federal Assets Sale and Transfer Act. The board recommends high-value but underutilized federal properties that GSA can put up for a fast-track sale and disposal process. Former Congressman Michael Capuano is a member of the board. He says federal employees are likely to leave their agency or federal service altogether if they're expected to work in the office every single day. You make somebody come back five days a week that doesn't want to, today's world, they can easily find another job, and they will. Former GSA Executive Tim Horn, now Executive Vice President of Portfolio Management at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, says agencies face the same challenge as the private sector in getting employees back to the office. If you're the manager of a Social Security Administration call center somewhere in the United States, you're really struggling to train new employees, you're struggling to implement a culture and to bring new people in and to keep people engaged and frankly to hold those that are performing accountable. Albert says GSA is looking at its current real estate portfolio across three separate buckets. Albert says the first bucket is made up of federal buildings that hold long-term strategic value for the federal government. It does not matter what the exact occupancy is. What matters is that that facility serves a long-term purpose for the federal government and we can backfill and manage occupancy over time. So that's one set of assets, and we have to modernize those assets and continue to maintain them. GSA is also focused on a second bucket of underutilized real estate, which is also becoming more costly to maintain. Those assets are the ones that we will put in our disposal pipeline. We've had a long disposal pipeline for some time, and we'll continue to feed that disposal pipeline. Those are just the types of properties the Public Buildings Reform Board is looking at helping the federal government sell. But Capuano says it takes agencies time and money to relocate their employees to a new consolidated location when moving out of a property. It does take time to actually physically move any agency in from point A to point B. It just takes time and coordination. It's not one agency. Nobody snaps their finger. You've got to deal with 10 different agencies doing 10 different things. It can be done, but they have to be focused. The third bucket includes many GSA properties that fall in the middle of the other two categories. Utilization shifts over time as workforce and workplace trends shift over time. So there's no magic number, but we're managing that middle that we're trying, as we understand how the pendulum will swing. To invest in modernized in federal buildings, GSA is asking Congress in its 2024 budget request to have full access to the Federal Buildings Fund. That fund contains the rent payments GSA collects from its federal tenants. Albert says access to these funds would help the GSA consolidate as well as improve office space for agencies. But Sargent says agencies can also make better use of the office space they already have. We have a lot of underutilized space and we need to do better. But we also need to stop rewarding people with space. Not everybody needs a dedicated huge office or a dedicated individual space, especially if you're not going to be there every single day. We need to learn to share. And not every single agency needs a tricked-out gym and a tricked-out conference room when they're right across the street from each other. 
We need to learn how to leverage the sharing economy and do better and create better spaces in less real estate that are more enticing that people actually want to be there. So consolidate, but make what you offer better. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com and subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.